Hi, everyone. This is Podcasts for Patients with the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation, and I'm Alice Houck, Senior Director of Patient and Professional Services. Our podcast series is brought to you thanks to generous support from patients, families, and caregivers like you and our corporate sponsors. Thanks to everyone for supporting this series. Today, we're talking about advances in treating MDS with Dr. Rory Shallis, Assistant Professor in the Section of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine at Yale University School of Medicine and Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Shallis. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. We'll start off with a basic question, and what is MDS? That's a great question, and it's... Uh... Unfortunately, it's, it's not too simple, but um, I can try. So MDS stands for the myelodysplastic syndromes. It's a collection of diseases that uh, arise out of a, a, a biological disturbance, just to kind of use a vague term, um, but a disturbance uh, among the hematopoietic uh, or blood cell making cells or compartments, specifically the parent-like cells within the bone marrow that uh, accumulate over time. And this translates into abnormalities in the blood cells they make in both quality and quantity, uh, the latter really manifesting as low blood counts, one of the more common presenting signs uh, of MDS. Um, the disturbance that puts these cells on the path to becoming MDS initiating is, is multi-clonal or multi-step process um, and subject to really a, a wide array of variables, genetic uh, and what we call epigenetic, uh, but also we're learning the importance of the sequence in which they occur. It's for, for this reason that it is in fact a collection with the diagnosis of MDS really being biologically, uh, genetically, what we call phenotypically uh, distinct from person to person. So, uh, but um, there are areas of, of, of overlap as it relates to these issues that allows us to at least attempt to study them uh, to hopefully lead to improvements in management. And what are the current treatment options for both low-risk MDS and high-risk MDS, and perhaps you can explain the difference between those as you uh, discuss the treatment options. Sure, it's a great question, and you, you really bring up one of the, you know, the classic dichotomies um, that we really have to kind of uh, assign or, or, or basket when it comes to, you know, as we just talked about, each diagnosis is somewhat unique between patient to patient. Um, but in formulating a treatment plan, we first attempt to predict how the disease is likely to behave inherently and of course down the road with certain treatment that uh, may or may not be offered to the patient. Uh, we can estimate this by using tools uh, that incorporate a collection of information, uh, the types and depths of low blood counts, the number of bone marrow blasts, certain what we call chromosomal abnormalities that can inform the prognosis and really individualize the treatment approach. Newer tools, um, well, one in particular, incorporates molecular or mutational data, um, which we've known for, for some time to impact the behavior of certain forms of MDS. So um, you'd mentioned lower risk disease or higher risk disease. Well, what risk are we talking about? It's mostly the risk of it really progressing to uh, what we generally regard as being a very, very you know, bad or aggressive form of MDS known as acute myeloid leukemia or AML. Um, there are patients that have predicted lower risk disease, uh, which we can sometimes just watch if the blood counts aren't that low and there are no disease-related problems. Uh, some patients, even with low-risk disease, uh, do have low blood counts that require consideration for some type of therapy that can perhaps improve it. This is typically anemia, and we have effective uh, medications such as those that increase the body's production of 
uh, erythropoietin, which is the, uh, the hormone that stimulates red blood cell production. Uh, the chance uh, of good effect differs between patients based on a number of factors, um, which I guess we don't really have to get into. Higher risk disease um, is different in its behavior and, you know, by the same token, its approach. Uh, our goal is to actually put pressure on the disease itself and not just address the problems with which it comes or, or causes. Higher risk disease must be really met at the front lines is what I often tell patients. Uh, as if, you know, uh, unchecked, we are accepting a higher risk of, of the disease eventually progressing to AML, like you talked about, which is essentially just an aggressive form of MDS. It's different, but, you know, just for the sake of simplicity. Um, so for high-risk disease, you know, for quite some time, the frontline therapeutic standard has been the administration of what we call the hypomethylating agents or HMAs. They go by several other names as well. Um, the two classic ones are azacitidine and decitabine. Um, although the rates of remission with these agents are, are relatively low, they have been shown uh, in both real-world study analyses and randomized controlled trials, um, which is really one of the gold standards, uh, to improve oral, overall survival um, without any differences appreciated between these two agents, being azacitidine or decitabine. We now have uh, an oral formulation of decitabine, which is approved um, in this setting as well, and certainly uh, an oral you know, once a day pill in cyclic fashion is, is attractive to many patients and providers for that matter too. Um, some patients with high risk disease and a blast percentage bordering on that defining AML receive in many cases, AML-like intensive therapy with the eventual goal for all of these patients, namely high risk patients, if they're able and it's feasible to have a suitable donor to undergo what we call an allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant, which is the only curative therapy of which we know today. So that was a you know, a higher level summary of what could really be an hour uh, long lecture. <laughs> yes, it's a lot to, to cover in a short period of time. I think this is helpful, though, for patients just trying to learn the options and for family and friends who are trying to understand what their loved one may be going through. Uh, with the, the transplantation uh, as an option, Years ago, that the uh, there used to be a cutoff just based on the age of the patient, but we understand that's been changing in recent years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, it's changing, and, and we think for good reason. Uh, age is really an imperfect surrogate for you know candidacy. Whether it's you know we could define this in different ways, or if in euphemisms, oh, appropriateness or eligibility for. Uh, what is a non-trivial procedure? Transplant is a procedure that does carry uh, risk. And these are risks that are accepted, you know, by patients that are 25-year-old marathon runners. Um, however, um, this somewhat arbitrary age 60 or greater or less than, for that matter, cutoff um, is getting a bit more uh, blurry. At least the border is becoming a bit more blurry just because we know there are some patients who are younger, for instance, that just can't accept the risks of transplant, whether it's because of uh, end organ reserve, that's just a bit more frail. Um, but there are also, quote, older patients than age 60, for that matter, that uh, we do think are, are, are quite fit uh, and thus, quote, eligible, end quote, to undergo uh, this procedure, which, as we discussed, is the only curative therapy. So um, the risk-benefit calculation, depending on one's goals and clinical situation, might, might be favorable uh, in this case, even for patients that are 70, 75 years old, for instance, um, the, the reason why this is becoming a, a bit more dynamic over the years is that we now have newer transplant techniques, 
uh, a wider availability of donor selection. I'd say better, better supportive care. And then more recently, uh, we do have some data to suggest that even older patients, quote unquote, um, can get through transplant, uh, you know, reasonably safely um, and derive some benefit. Now, in that, it might not mean that we're curing all these patients, but at least from a disease-directed therapy standpoint, it is moving uh, the goalpost a bit further. Um, and this is, of course, a, a benefit to, to many, many patients. Yes, thank you for elaborating on that. I think that helps uh, patients understand that the options are expanding in that regard. And are there any new treatments on the horizon? And as you're talking about those also, if you could uh, talk about the uh, potential to participate in a clinical trial for patients and why that's an important consideration for them. Sure. New treatments on the horizon. Yes. And, and thank goodness. Um, because of the, the shared pathobiology, as we call it, between MDS, namely high-risk disease, and as we just discussed, AML, um, there has been a fortunate and ongoing effort to extend the advancements in AML therapy over the last five years or so, um, and it has been sort of a golden age, uh, to the MDS space with some minor considerations regarding you know, either dosing or administration schedule. Uh, the one on the horizon that holds quite some promise is the use of uh, what we call the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax, which um, in combination with the hypomethylating agent, uh, a combination approved for the treatment uh, of AML among patients that were um, inappropriate to receive intensive therapy. This combination improves survival in comparison to azacitidine monotherapy um, and AML and, and has been a game changer for many patients. So why not see if it changes the game for patients with MDS? Interim data suggests that the addition of venetoclax can achieve responses among these patients who are uh, being failed by azacitidine, which is, you know, one of a, you know, two, if not three, if you want to include the oral uh, HMA. Um, but these aren't perhaps perfect responses, but maybe just enough to finally proceed the transplant. Uh, the addition of venetoclax to frontline azacitidine is also being studied, uh, and some data suggest responses to be uh, a bit quicker and deeper um, when indirectly compared to the current standard of, you know, as we discussed, single agent hypomethylating agent. Much attention is being paid to an ongoing uh, randomized phase three trial, which is comparing azacitidine alone, the current quote-unquote standard to azacitidine and venetoclax, and it's going to use overall survival as its primary endpoint, and we'll of course, hopefully render a conclusion soon and could be practice changing. So uh, this is one example of why clinical trials are are certainly encouraged in every setting, whether it's frontline setting, if it's appropriately designed, um, and perhaps uh, with a bit more critical need, the what we call the reps refractory setting, where, you know, there aren't, I'd say, as many true game changers. So clinical trial is certainly something that should be sought out and encouraged, whether you're being treated in the community or certainly at an academic setting, this should be um, you know, one of several options presented. Other treatments on the horizon uh, are mostly being say, studied in combination with hypomethylating agents, including, let me just name a few, the anti-CD47 agent magrolimab or other targeted therapies like the IDH inhibitors, ibacidinib or enacidinib or enacidinib. Uh, monotherapies uh, in the reps refractory setting might also hold promise such as um, the IREC4 inhibitor, CA4948, or you can even say the ever-expanding armamentarium of cellular therapies, each targeting different aspects of MDS biology. And of course, all of these are, are really being exclusively studied in the clinical trial setting. So really gaining that access to novel and potentially game-changing medications is, um, we think, uh, you know, of benefit to patients, but of course, the, the larger field as a whole. 
And when patients do participate in a clinical trial, an important thing to reiterate is that it they get at least the standard of care that they would be getting even if they were not in a trial. But from then, it varies based on the trial, and, and they get wonderful guidance and care throughout the whole process. Because a, a one fallacy that we try to address is that a, a, a clinical trial is not necessarily the last resort or, you know, that it, it is a viable treatment option for patients if they are considered eligible. Yes, this is an important distinction to make, and I, I would agree with you. This is a conversation that comes up or misconception that comes up uh, quite often in the clinic. Um, now, I, I would probably just clarify with one with one comment. There are some trials that you know are using uh, agents or attempting to study agents that really are, in many cases, sort of you know a, a close to last resort, and we have to think more outside the box. And a patient's already been failed by either our tried and trues or our, you know, all of our meaningfully effective therapies and disease is still quite stubborn. So we have to you know, try to outsmart it. And this might mean using an agent for which we really don't know uh, what to expect with regards to efficacy and to a certain extent, you know, side effect profile. Uh, and those are trials, which, you know, we do think still have a, a favorable risk benefit calculation for the individual, but it's more so to your point, there are uh, many more, I'd say, frontline or maybe early salvage trials that, yes, have to have what are what are known as a reference standard. In the frontline setting, uh, as we just discussed, it's going to be a, a backbone using a hypomethylating agent, just so, as, as you said, the patient is not being deprived of a, a standard of care, you know, being effective therapy. Without that, then, yes, patients would be cheated out of of therapy that they would also, that they would otherwise get if they were not on the trial. So that is, I, I would agree, that is a key distinction. And, you know, we really hope that this, this stigma can hopefully be, be mitigated over time. Yes, thank you for that clarification. And uh, finally, are, other than the treatments that you've discussed, are there other advances happening in MDS related to perhaps a diagnosis or how their therapy can be targeted? You mentioned that in discussing the treatments. And how, are there any advances like that, that like that that are impacting diagnosis and treatment and really management of MDS? Yes, 100%. And this is, a, this is another important question. You're asking great questions. Um, advancing the understanding of MDS biology and what brings it about or allows it to hang around even after exposure to fairly effective therapy is, is critical to moving the field forward and identifying really newer therapeutic targets, mechanisms of resistance, then they predict a patient who is more likely to respond to a particular therapy or conversely, which patients are unlikely to respond and in reality may just be exposed to all the side effects without, without much benefit. Um, improvements in the diagnosis uh, and estimating prognosis, which informs treatment, uh, will advance the field forward as well. So whether it's you know, the ongoing effort to understand what we call CHIP or CECUS, we don't have to go through what those abbreviations mean, uh, but in brief clonal states that have not yet or may not ever really manifest with actionable, quote, disease, end quote, uh, or among patients with a, a bona fide disease state, the recent progress in softening the border between the diagnosis of MDS and AML, um, we think will end up truly helping more individuals. And just kind of to harken back to our last discussion that, yes, this will probably allow more patients with, quote, unquote, MDS to get therapies that were otherwise previously restricted to you know, AML trials, and in some cases, vice versa. 
Um, there are more advances, but let's probably just say lastly, the development uh, and wider availability of next generation technologies to, to dig deeper and, and better identify um, maybe actionable targets as we talked about, but also the smallest, really what we call foci disease that we call quote, measurable residual disease, end quote, um, the use of which if properly understood, which is an important caveat, uh, might change management decisions and, and hopefully impact patient outcomes. Very good. Well, we'll end on that hopeful note of some new things on the horizon and the treatment options available, many more than there used to be. But of course, we always want to see more and improved outcomes. So uh, thank you so much, Dr. Shalas, for sharing your time and expertise with all of us today. You thank can you find out more about bone marrow failure disease on our website at www.aamds.org by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or by calling our helpline at 800-747-2820. Thank you for listening.